Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Now last week we discussed Titus chapter 1 and we looked a lot at the elders and the overseers of the church, the authority in the church. And this week we're going to kind of change tune a little bit. We're going to look inside the church and we're going to ask what people are supposed to look like, what the members of this gracious community ought to be and ought to do. And not long ago, way back when I was teaching, one of my favorite things to do was I, I did a little bit of coaching. I would coach the middle school football and basketball team. And, and one of the highlights of the year for my students was when we would go out of town and there was that one game where we'd go an hour or two away from home and instead of coming straight home after the game, we'd stop at a restaurant. We'd stop at you know Wendy's or or Burger King, or, or something that a lot of us might not find that exciting. But for middle school boys, this was the highlight of the year. And as we'd pull up into the parking lot, they would jump out of their chairs ready to go spend their money on hamburgers and french fries. But the coaches, one of us would stand up, and we'd sit them all down, and we'd have the coach talk with them. Look boys, when we go inside, you need to remember who you are. Remember the shirt that you're wearing. Remember the town, the team that you play for, because what you do and the way you behave in there says something about who you are, and not just who you are, but something greater, something greater that you represent. You represent our team. You represent us coaches. You represent our school. You represent our town. We expect to see proper behavior. In the same way, we, we sort of have the same idea here in chapter 2 of Titus. That Paul is coming to Titus and he's explaining that, look, believers don't just represent themselves. They represent our God and our Savior. That what we do and what we say, how we treat one another and those around us speaks volumes about who we are. See, the church is a community in which all members receive training to make the doctrine of God attractive through the Gospel-empowered living that we've been given. Do we see that proper doctrine demands duty and that our duty displays proper doctrine? In other words, what we believe and how we behave are directly connected and fruit must follow our faith. Now the conversation that we see here in chapter 2 of Titus really begins with the false teachers that we saw in chapter 1. See, Paul is drawing a contrast between Titus and the false teachers. Paul tells Titus that there are really only two ways to live. Either you profess God and prove it by the way that you act. Or you don't and you live according to the patterns of this world. See, according to Paul, in verse in chapter 1, verse 16, he says that the false teachers profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. See, these people are claiming an intimate knowledge of God, that they have relationship with Him, that they know Him personally. However, Paul tells us that they deny Him by their works. See, this word deny is the same word that all the Gospel writers pick up and use uh, right before Jesus is crucified. As Peter 
was there and people asked him, do you know Jesus? Are you one of the disciples? Are you one of them? And he said to them, I do not know him. I am not one of them. I do not know what you are talking about. See, this is the kind of blatant denial that, that Paul has in mind when he speaks here in Titus chapter 2 or chapter 1 about the false teachers. See, the false teachers were hypocrites and they were liars and you could tell by the way that they lived their lives. You see, Titus is not to play the hypocrite. And he is to teach the Cretans to profess Christ with the words that acknowledge Him and with works. Even when their actions do not fit with the society around them. See, actually, Paul makes the point that living as Christians is one of the best ways to distinguish ourselves and witness to our culture through displaying the Gospel message in what we do. The way he shows us this is by telling Titus to instruct Christians, according to what ethics refers to as the house tables or the domestic codes that he explains in chapter 2. See, in other words, Paul tells Titus that he ought to instruct the members of the church to live according to Christian family ethics. He's to instruct each member of the family, the old men and the old women, the young men and the young women. He even speaks to the servants, telling them to act in a godly manner that is appropriate to your status. So let's look briefly at Paul's specific instructions to Titus and then to each group so that we might understand how the family of believers shines in the midst of Cretan culture and where the power of godly living comes from. So the first thing we see in our chapter is that Paul addresses Titus. He addresses him in, in verse 1. He again addresses him in verse 7. And then he addresses him at the end of the chapter in verse 15. And so we see three places, and it kind of helps to pull the whole passage together and show us that Paul is really talking about Titus's teaching ministry and what he's to do here. Instead of going through them kind of as we come to them, I'd like to put them all together and just look at what is this teaching ministry of Titus supposed to look like. So in verse 1, he says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, this word sound comes up many times in this passage and in the other pastoral epistles. Paul loves this word. The idea that we have here is that it's, it's something that's healthy. It's something that's wholesome. That it's pure. That, it, that it's all put together. That nothing's been taken away from it and nothing's been added to it. It's sound. And it's used oftentimes kind of to compare against something that's unhealthy. Something that's like a body that's missing something or is diseased. And so this word sound kind of stands in opposition to the false teachers. That there's a, there's a clear contrast between them and the faulty, tarnished doctrine and the twisting and manipulating that was taking place by them for their own gain that we saw in chapter 1. In verse 7, Paul goes on and says that your teaching should show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. That there's a seriousness to what's going on and what's being taught. That there's an earnestness. That this is of utmost importance and it needs to remain pure. That there's no twisting or turning or hiding the dangerous parts from people. But we're to proclaim the whole counsel of God. The elsewhere, Paul describes his ministry in these terms. He says, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. But by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God 
See, what passion Paul had for pure doctrine. Take the Bible and teach what it contains with integrity and without apology. It does not need our help to spruce it up or to make it culturally relevant. No, the truth we have received in the Scriptures must be understood on its own terms. The church is to love doctrine and to long to understand what God has revealed in His Word clearly to us. We want to understand God as purely as possible. So then holding to this truth with integrity, Titus is reminded once more in verse 15 that he is to exhort and rebuke with all authority. See, the goal is learning. He's to teach. He's to help people grow and mature in the faith. Say what must be said and how it must be said. He's not going to err on the side. He's going to speak how he needs to speak to these people so that they understand the message. Whether that means he cheers them along or he rebukes them. See, he's a coach. He's a parent. He's a teacher. He's a shepherd that longs for his congregation to grow up into Christ Jesus under the message and the doctrine that has been handed down to us. And so the last part, that we see of His teaching is that He's to model proper doctrine. It says, to show yourself in all respects a model of good works. So if you're doing the work of discipleship, you must practice what you preach. There must be action that accompanies what is being said. It's one thing to hear what you are to do, but it's another thing to be able to look out and see it modeled for you. See, the ministry of the church must teach sound doctrine and display behavior that accords with it. And so we come to the main portion of the passage. What exactly are the behaviors and the posture that believers are supposed to take? Well, we'll just briefly look at each one and we'll kind of just look for a snapshot. We won't be able to dive in very deeply. There's a lot of material here. That'd be great if you could do that on your own time. We'll just take a little snapshot and kind of look and see what Paul is driving at, what he's getting to by the end of our passage. So in verse 2, he addresses the older men and says that they are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. You see, the church today needs older men, both in faith and in life, to be an example. See, there is a great need in the ministry for older men to act their age. See, we live in a time where youth is king and the goal is to stay forever young. And we laugh at the midlife crisis when an, when an older guy goes out and buys a sports car to prove that he's young. See, the church needs solid, grounded men of age and experience. We need men of age and experience to look to and learn from. We need godly grandfathers and fathers to keep us level-headed, to remind us of God's great faithfulness in good times and in bad times. Throughout life's circumstances, they show us the kind of deep faith and love, consistency and steadfastness that only an older man could show. Continuing this conversation, Paul moves on to older women in verse 3. Likewise, they are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers of wine, uh, not slanderers or wine addicts. Teach what is good to the younger women. 
So likewise, Paul shows that he has a similar idea for older men and older women. See, our churches need older godly women to show what reverent behavior looks like. Now, when we look at the word reverent, uh, the, the idea here is that it's someone who stands before the presence of God. That they're in God's presence and before His face. Like godly grandfathers, godly grandmothers will direct our gaze heavenward continually through the way that they carry themselves and live their lives. Now these women would definitely stand out in Crete. Remember, Crete had a bad reputation. It was normal for older women to drink wine and get together and just talk about other people. To slander, to gossip, to have all kinds of fun. So slander breeds more slander. Contempt breeds more contempt. And if you get people together that start trashing one another, it's amazing how quickly things get out of control. Now you add a little wine to this mix, and it could be really easy to start a roaring fire of gossip, of contempt, and of slander. And this is what the women of Crete, the older women of Crete were known for. They put in their time, and now they can just enjoy themselves. But rather than following this pattern, of using their tongues destructively, Christian women were called to use their speech to build up and not to destroy, to teach and to train the younger women in what it meant to be mature and to grow up. You see, to become a godly grandmother, younger women needed training now. That the trials that they face today are not new, but they've already been faced by the older women in the congregation. None of them had gone through these trials. None of them had gone through these challenges perfectly. But simply by going through, the age and the experience provides the younger women with a valuable perspective and the great wisdom that the older women provide to them. So what kind of training were they to receive? Paul answers this as we continue our tour in verses 4 and 5. Younger women are to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their husbands. See, if God has so blessed you, it is a great honor in your role as wife or mother. Notice the high calling of the selfless love, the service, the purity, and the work ethic. Much like the older women, the younger women were to live in a countercultural manner. Young Cretan women were known to be free, uncommitted, open to enjoy life however they would like. But here Paul points to the beauty of commitment and a disciplined, strategic life that Christian young women were to be trained into by the older women. Now this passage has been used to support the idea that women are supposed to just stay home and not seek a profession outside of the home. Or even that the ideal for a woman is to be married and to have children. Now neither of these ideas are what Paul ultimately has in mind or is getting at here. Rather, he is pointing out the distinctiveness and the character and discipline young Christian women are developing in the face of a world with secular values in Crete. In verse 6, we come to the young men. Paul simply tells them to be, urge them to be self-controlled. Now you'll notice that this term has been used in every group that we've talked about. It's four times here in this passage, and it's also used about the elders 
in chapter 1. And so this is a very important term that Paul is using. So I think it's appropriate to take a few minutes just to look at what does it mean? Now, intellectually, self-control isn't very difficult to understand. It's made up of, of self and control, that you control oneself. Now, one way to think about this uh, is to think about it in terms of being able to put the brakes on in, a, in your car in a certain situation. I know uh, Nancy DeMoss in her book Adorned, which uh, the women read through a couple years ago in a book study, uh, but it's all about Titus too. She goes through and she explains that the term that is used here in Greek is actually a modern term that is used to define the car brakes. So self-control is to be able to put the brakes on. For example, he was on a diet, but that bag of chips, that pizza and pop, were very tempting. But he had self-control, and he stuck with his salad and water. I mean, it's easy. We understand self-control intellectually. But this idea that we're thinking about with self-control needs to be in every area of our lives. Young women, young old women, young men, old men, elders. That it's a Christian trait. It needs to be included in our thoughts, our attitudes, our speech, and our action. Self-control means keeping yourself under control rather than allowing something else to govern your life. So do we display sensible, sound, self-controlled behavior? Or do we show ourselves to be irrational, impulsive, undisciplined, or out of control? When we find sinful areas in our lives that seem to be outside of our control, we're not given the excuse, it's out of my hands, or that's just who I am. No, we don't get to take the easy way out. It's a battle. That's why Paul mentions it so many times here. When Paul calls our attention to the necessity of self-control, he understands that it's not an easy task. Now we will return to talk about where the motivation and the power to fight this battle and the battle against other sins comes from. But for now, we see that Paul tells individuals that self-control is a distinguishing mark of Christian in society. So that whether you lived 2,000 years ago in Crete, or in America today, self-control isn't really in vogue. We are told to be yourself and do what makes you happy. In such a context, it will be obvious to the world if you are a true believer or simply professing Christ, but denying Him through your actions, largely based on our battle for self-control. And so we come to the results. What's the purpose? Why, why does Paul go through? Why does Paul give us all of this information about what people are supposed to look like and act and, and do? Well, Paul gives us three specific reasons in our text. Yes, we are to live according to God's standards because it gives God glory. Yes, we are to do it for our own good. But actually, Paul points to our interactions with unbelievers as the primary motivation for these family ethics. Now. I'm not very good at Greek, uh, but one of the words that I love in Greek is hina. And it, it means that or so that. And Paul loves this word. It is, a, it is a purpose statement. He's saying, this happened, so that this. And we see it three times in our passage. First, we see it in verse 5 where he's speaking to the young women. And he says that the Word of God might not be reviled. You see, 
proper Christian behavior reflects our confession regarding God's Word. When Christians do not act in accordance with it, the world sees this and can easily discard Christianity. However, when people of God live in ways that He has shown us to live, the opposite is true. While the watching world may not agree with what we believe, the consistency and the lack of hypocrisy indeed does not allow the easy way out for people to simply discredit Christianity. Ultimately, proper behavior honors the Word of God rather than reviles it. In verse 8, we see another hint of praise. In your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be or that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Here, Paul focuses on Titus' words and his message. Whether Titus is teaching or just speaking in casual conversation, what he says can and will be used against him. Remember the situation that Titus was walking into. He was called to rebuke and to silence the false teachers. Now, they're not going to go away quietly. They're not just going to roll over and leave. They're going to stick around. And they're going to use everything that they can to fight against Titus. To fight against his words. To discredit him and what he stands for in the church. They're seeking to undermine his ministry. Therefore, Paul reminds Titus that he needs to mind his P's and his Q's. That he needs to speak what accords with godliness always. That he's to speak clearly. To mean what he says. Don't be sloppy in your teaching or in your conversation. Again, do not allow the outside world to think poorly because of the words that you use or the things that you say. Remember who you represent. And finally, in verse 10, we see that the slaves, they're to be submissive to their own masters. Well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. See, Paul here gives us the glorious purpose for acting in accordance with sound doctrine. See, the word adorn is translated by the NIV to make attractive good doctrine. The ESV, it's used as adorn. See, in the Greek, Paul paints for us a, a vivid word picture. The word adorn it means one who sets out their jewelry in display. So think about walking into a jewelry store or into a museum and you look at a priceless diamond. In order to properly display the splendor of this jewel, the manager, the workers have to work hard to make sure that everything is polished and clean, that the glass is free from fingerprints, that the lights are turned on just right and from many angles so that you can see this diamond shine in perfection. See, we want to see the precision of the cut, the color, the clarity of this gem. Now, the manager works hard to turn on the lights and make everything just right, not to add value to the diamond. But he does that to display the radiance and the splendor that that diamond already possesses. 
See, the diamond would still be priceless if it was placed in a dark room or even if it was covered with mud. But what the servant does is that he adorns that gem, that he cleans it off. He puts it in a place of prominence where everyone can see it. And he lets that diamond speak for itself. So what Paul is saying here is, be a servant of the Gospel that adorns the pure doctrine of God. You have the glory of the Gospel of Jesus Christ in your life. You know it. You profess it. It's absolutely stunning. It's sparkling with splendor. Shining with blinding radiance. How are you going to display it? How are you going to let it speak? Well, Paul tells us that it's by our deeds that we need to both get out of the way of the Gospel's message by removing the griminess of sin that clouds our profession of the Gospel and to actively place the Gospel in a prominent place in our lives and let it be illuminated by the good works that God has called us to. See, we can't actually add to the Gospel or subtract from its glory. However, the way we live our lives will make it either appealing to people or it will make it confusing for people. See, our goal is to make people focus on the gem of pure doctrine rather than give reason for them to discredit it. And that's what Paul is getting at with this idea of adorning it. It's interesting that Paul uses this word picture in the context of the bond servants. They weren't called to do big or vastly difficult things. I mean, if you look at the list, they were called to listen to their boss, to do the right thing for the right reason, not to argue or steal. And by doing this, Paul tells them that they adorn the gospel, that they adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. See, this daily, seemingly ordinary faithfulness displays the doctrine of God mightily before a watching world. So if we think about our own mundane, ordinary lives, have we considered that in our lives, in our daily walk, in the little things as well as the big, we either dim or adorn the glory of the Gospel that we profess? May we remember to live in light of the glory of the Gospel, always seeking to let it shine through our lives. Now, if I, if I was Titus, at this point, I'd feel inspired but totally unprepared. But this is a tall order. Like, How would you like to be Titus right now? Here he is in a rough Cretan culture with the values that are opposite of everything that Paul has just described. And he's telling him, train these people that have grown up in this culture, that have grown up with these values, and teach them to, to put those things away and cling to something that, while better, is hard. It's difficult. I mean, if I was Titus, I would say, look, I, I'm not prepared. I can't do it. I'm not perfect. How am I supposed to curb my own behavior, much less teach others and model for others what you're calling us to do? See, Paul meets these concerns in the last verses of our passage. If you look at verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So we see that God's grace has appeared in the person of His own Son, Jesus Christ. The first thing that grace does is it provides salvation for people. All people, including old men 
Old women, young women, young men, slaves, servants, Cretans, Greeks, Gentiles, Jews. See, God's grace provided salvation not because of how great Titus was or because of how holy the people in the Cretan churches were. No, salvation was provided first before any works were done. What an encouragement to us that our salvation does not rest on our own holiness or ability to live in the way we ought. No, our salvation rests in God's grace alone. In verse 12, Paul shows us a second aspect to God's grace. He says that it is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright lives. In verse 14, he has a parallel statement where he says, uh, Jesus Christ who gave Himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. And so both places we see that the grace of God not only saves us, but it trains us to live the way we ought. Now there are two pieces to this. There's one that it teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Now this word renounce is the same word he used in chapter 116 where they deny God by their works. So so Paul here is reversing it. He's saying that instead of proclaiming God and then denying Him by His works, he's saying proclaim, profess God, adorn His salvation, and deny the world. And deny the passions of this world. The second thing that we see is that it teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Notice that here again we have the idea of self-control. Upright. Godly living. You see, in our battle for sanctification, that process that God is working out in our lives, God has given us many aids. He's given us peers to walk beside us. Wise, older men and women to provide wisdom and support. Elders and teachers and leaders in the church to train us and to provide an environment for our flourishing. And here in verse 12, we see that ultimately, God uses all of this to personally work out His grace in our lives. He has called us to live. Now this is not a self-empowered living. It is God's grace worked out in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit so that we may say with the Apostle Paul, I toil struggling with all the energy that He powerfully works within me. Another way to say this is in the beautiful lines of the song, All I Have is Christ says, now Lord, I would be Yours alone and live so all might see. The strength to follow Your commands could never come from Me. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. And so we live after the first coming of Christ, but in in view of the second coming. Verse 13 tells us that we are waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That we live between the two comings of Christ. That initially He came. He lived. He died. He brought about our salvation. And He provides the power to live now. However, we know that this isn't the end of the story. 
That at the end of the story, we will see Him coming back in power and in glory. And this is our hope. This is our longing. This is what we live for. See, currently we live suspended between these appearances of flesh. But as we wait for the return of the King, we continually repeat, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. You see, we wait in hope that the battle is already won. And that our salvation is completely accomplished in Him. And so we seek to glorify Him as He works out His sanctifying grace in our lives so that in everything we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.